Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. This evening, we've got Laura Summers. Hey, hey. Hey, and Dan Salmon. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Tolker. Thanks for joining us. Tonight, we look at how the Melbourne Pollen Count and Forecast Service has been analysing data and keeping us informed since 2011 and how they've changed along the way. So it's peak allergy season. Um, I hope you enjoy a bit of data and analytics and getting nerdy about Melbourne pollen. Before we get there, there's a lot of news, massive things going on. Laura, what's happening with Google? Yeah, so there's been this big antitrust law that's been um, kind of under the covers for a little while, but has just been unredacted and released um, by state attorneys general. And it is a big piece of law or a big attempted attempt to um, sort of tackle a bunch of anti-competitive practices that Google is being accused of doing. And it's related to their ad market. So I don't know, like just just like as a quick refresher, do you both sort of get the the basics of how Google makes its money and like how they sell ads and like what the whole how the whole thing works? Can you give me the Google elevator pitch? <laughs> oh, I don't. Even, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I mean, essentially, Google sells ads in order to make money, in order to build its platforms, right? And the ads are seen um, one of two ways. So sometimes you see them. Um, by paid advertising where they have these slots where it's like they they see what keywords are searching and then they'll be like, I want to be the top of the list. So people will pay to be the first thing that gets a result in the list. And then sometimes um, uh, it's like embedded in a page. So you'll see an ad where it's like, you know, you're reading something and then there'll be an ad that will pop up and people are bidding for those spaces as well. And both of them are kind of targeted based on like, what it is you search for on the internet and like what history they know about you and the sort of like massive shadow profile they build up about you. But the thing with Google is that it's both a like exchange and the seller. So the metaphor that they made the the US um, district court at the Southern District of New York came back with was saying it's like if Goldman or Citibank um, also owned the stock exchange, right? Yes. So it's like, it's like, you know, you've kind of got like these vested interests in doing well. Um, and you can so price th- it. Yeah. Sorry, what was that, Vanessa? And you can set the price. Yeah, exactly. You can set the price. And um, so, yeah, a lot of what this lawsuit is alleging is that they were like hoisting the prices up much more than like the sort of market dictated. Um, and there's also a lot of anti-competitive practices being alleged with regards to their AMP um, technology, which is a mobile accelerated pages um, technology. And it's essentially was built as this way to like make your pages go super fast to mobile, right? Like, I don't know if you remember back in the dark ages of 2008, but like web pages <laughs> used to load really slowly on your mobile, right? Yes. And they just sit there and wait for like ever for like that one dumb, like, you know, page to load up. So this was, you know, like there was a genuine performance issue that, that they were responding to. But as um, in addition to that, they were wanting to sort of swallow the web because what that means is all of the pages instead of being purely hosted on their own servers are also like sending their traffic through Google as part of that. So so everything kind of gets touched by Google as the traffic goes through. 
Um, so one of the things they're accusing, for instance, is that they are they were like actively slowing down ads not being served through their AMP technology. So they were saying they were like adding a latency of an, an extra second mm -hmm. to ads that were coming through other servers, um, which, you know, in the world of Internet, it, it's actually quite a lot mm. like a second may not seem like a lot to you or me, but for, you know, a web page loading, that extra second could like really make that page feel unusable. Yeah. Or you've um, moved on before you've been served the ad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You might have like scrolled down already and the ad's not even there anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, they had they had like a dodgy secret deal with Facebook called Jedi Blue, which just makes me vomit in my mouth. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Like, come on, dudes. Like, my dudes, really. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to do better. Yeah. Um, and apparently they were like pressuring Microsoft and Facebook not to improve the privacy of their ads and their ad targeting. So they were saying like, no, 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 don't like, don't respect individual privacy. It's all about the business. So yeah, like there's a whole bunch of stuff. It's 173 pages. Um, if you want to read it, if you are a legal nerd, you should go read it. But there's also a very good um, Wall Street Journal article that covers off all the details. But yeah, like not hugely surprising, but also very interested to see if any of these anti-competitive practices actually like result in meaningful sort of penalties for them, like enough that it's not just a slap on the wrist. Mm. Yeah, it looks like it's imminent, really. Um, mm. Yeah. Let's talk about something parallel to this at the moment in the news, which is the Facebook Papers story keeps on giving. So Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen has um, released a whole lot of whistleblower documents and the press are gradually working their way through them, you know, verifying certain things that they can and then drip feeding us with the stories so that they don't just fall off the front page immediately if they released 100 stories, which they could do. Mm. So some of the stories that have come out just... Um, this week, since Monday, have been about the storming of the Capitol, so the January 6th Capitol riots um, and what Facebook knew about the measures to stop the spread of speech that incited violence and um, how many of these safety measures had been actually set aside in the lead-up to those riots and why that's so and, and unpicking, you know, those decisions which really seem to be very profit motivated. Um, there were there's evidence in in this about lots of suggestions from staff members and memos. Hey, we can definitely limit the problems with misinformation as a first step by switching off the ability to interact with these sort of posts until we can get a handle on it. Um, and they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to slow down engagement, and that you know because that stops the spread of information. It stops the advertising model, you know, getting to more eyeballs. Um, they also bring up hate speech in India, so the Facebook content moderation system in India failing to stymie incendiary content. So some of those issues had to do with its algorithm's failure to handle non-English languages, um, which is quite a shocker when you consider, you know, Facebook are actually a massive employer. They've got over 40,000 employees and they talk about how, look, we're spending all these resources to moderate our platform and you're like, well, that seems like it would be enough and yet, you know, here, here are these big holes and big problems. The third issue um, that they've really focused on this week is teen engagement on Facebook and Instagram and that's slowing and that being, you know, the perception of the problem that that creates for them in their user base. Now, while a lot of social networks deal with users ageing out of them and, and think about their peak user age group, um, there are questions about how Facebook's tweaking their tool to keep them on board. Um, and this, you know, is 
tied to some of the earlier revelations around the um, Facebook-owned research into the damage it was causing, particularly young and more vulnerable users um, on Instagram and on Facebook um, around perceptions of self and body image and, you know, depression and all these sorts of really um, sensitive issues that are even more sensitive when you're thinking about young people's experience online and how alienating that would be. So it's, um, you know, the revelations will continue to come out. It's well worth reading anything uh, that comes out about the Facebook papers and really thinking about, my gosh, the internet hasn't been the same since Facebook was around, even if we got rid of it. Like there's nothing to replace it at the moment. Um, And, yeah, with those sort of resources, you would be thinking that, some of these things would be fixed by now. They certainly can't plead ignorance of these problems. That's the main thing that this whistleblowing effort has really um, made clear to everybody. Um, and, yeah, it's it's hugely significant. It's going to keep on going. Congress is involved and they're asking um, increasingly uh, penetrating questions of Facebook. Uh, but the interesting thing will be, well, what can they actually do? Also, there's a limit to which um, US interrogation of these problems is helpful for the rest of the world. You know, Facebook has, you know, billions of users worldwide. And um, for some places, Facebook is the only way that people access the internet. So there'll be agreements of ISPs in some countries where you might not have an internet account, but you can get to Facebook. Mm. So Facebook becomes the source of political information and misinformation and disinformation or whatever might be available in your region. Um, it's so significant and it's really interesting, I think, to, to step away from a, a really privileged Western perspective on this and also think, my gosh, the effect this is having on democracies in countries where resources are scarcer mm. is just massive. Absolutely. Mm. Well, Facebook, like, very deliberately you know, pose themselves as the source of the internet for developing countries where there was, you know, like it was resource poor. Lots of people only have a phone and often not even a very smartphone as opposed to a laptop or another kind of device. Mm. Um, you know, like that was one of the ways they attempted to sort of, um, you know, wash their reputation a little bit was their like internet project, which was like, you know, giving away all this free infrastructure and trying to get people connected. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a, a poisoned apple, I think, if all you get to see then is the Facebook and nothing. Oh, yeah. gosh, I sounded like a boomer in the Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> the Facebook. Oh, man. Yeah, and the most extreme news in your market yeah. will get yeah. amplified. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And look, I mean, to the point of them spending however many billion, I've forgotten, sorry, I lost the number, the digit, but... um, uh, it's, 13 it's, billion to moderate its platform, apparently. Yeah, 13 apparently. billion is still, an, it's it's a drop in the bucket when mm. you look at the money they have and the money they spend. Like it's, you know, like they're country-sized. They're mm. not, you know, like it sounds like a lot for a business, but they're, mm. they're a multinational. They have an enormous amount of income. And also um, they're using this as the rebuttal, like, oh, but it should be okay. We've got 40,000 employees and $13 billion invested in solving this. It's like, well, not very well, you know, like... Yeah, and also like that one of the earlier revelations from the Facebook papers was this whole whitelist thing where mm. they like deliberately allowed a ton of content that they knew like absolutely contravened their terms of use. Mm. And they were like, uh, yeah, but it's too hard to censor Donald Trump. So we're not yeah. going to do it. <laughs> like that, that was literally their take was like, we don't know how to censor people who's um, you know, who are too famous or have too many followers. Mm. And I like, of course the like, you know, the quiet part of that is not only is it hard to do because people push back, but also like it's, it represents an enormous amount of engagement for them. Mm. 
Hey, in related news, um, obviously it must be very difficult to decide to be a whistleblower in such a high-profile case and think, right, you're blowing up your career, what's going to happen there? How do you possibly even start to do this? And um, an interesting side story that's come out is that uh, the eBay founder um, and tech critic Pierre Omidyar is one of the people helping Francis Haugen um, take on powerful companies. And there's an article in uh, Politico, which is kind of cool, um, which talks about how important, you know, he thought this was and that he his global philanthropic organisation called Luminate was handling press for Haugen and also handling government relations, so helping organise meetings and, and um, drive some impact from these revelations. Uh, last year, his foundation gave $150,000 US to Whistleblower Aid, which is a non-profit that's also providing Haugen's legal representation and advice. So, you know, there's a whole coordinated effort behind this that it takes to not be squashed by the massive global, you know, tech company and actually find a voice here. So that's it's pretty significant. Really interesting to read about um, another person who's been supporting Haugen is Harvard Constitutional Law Professor uh, Larry Lessig, they're calling him now. He used to be Lawrence, Lawrence. but now he's Larry. Everyone's getting very relaxed. Um, <laughs> maybe he's retired. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was very cool to see. Um, he's um, been providing communication advice and support as well. He's not her main lawyer. He says he's not trying to take credit for that, but you know he's part of an impressive team organised through Whistleblower Aid. Um, so it's kind of great to hear that she's got some really um, good thinking and good resources behind her as well because mm. this would be a very difficult position to be in. Absolutely. It'll be interesting mm. to see if there's any anything further to come from those uh, papers. A mm. uh, bit of a change of tack in terms of news. Uh, do you guys remember Nick Delicio? I did not pronounce that properly. Um, he, yeah, we do. Uh, he did. He, he became pretty big about uh, uh, nine, eight or nine years ago. He was 17 years old and started uh, the content summarizer app Sumly. Um, and then sold it to Yahoo for a tidy uh, sum of about thirty million US dollars, which for a seventeen-year-old is a lot of money. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say much about what a seventeen-year-old would do with that kind of money, other than to say that please, I hope someone gave him some guidance on it. Um, he, uh, Larry Lessig's just Larry, another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's paying Larry Lessig for for just for the advice. Um, he, he's he's hit it big again. Um, he 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 has um, created a new app with a, a business partner. Uh, Thomas Helgus. Uh, he did um, live briefly in, the, in Australia, here in Melbourne, but he's now based in the UK and um, has sold his new venture, Sphere, which connects to strangers interested in common topics for an undisclosed amount to uh, Twitter, uh, it, w- it would seem. Um, what, what do you reckon? How much? Oh, who knows? They did talk about $150 million Series A funding, I think, at some point, so they'd have to have returned. Have a valuation of at least double that, yeah. Oh, I thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, so Sphere, Sphere's got the um, the capability to create multiple chats for a single group, uh, to send highlighted announcements so that no one in a group misses anything and to send notifications to individuals or those just yet to read a message. I've, I've not used, have you used Have you used Sphere at all? I have not used Sphere. It reminded me too much of the, um, the horror slash thriller sort of film, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the watery world. Yep, with yep. The, yeah. Laura? I, no, I haven't. I'm actually, I, I wish that there was a bit more detail available about how it sort of promotes a, a positive culture or like how it 
So they they clearly like understand the kind of negative and toxicity of um you know like your classic image posting boards like the Reddits and the eight chans and all mm-hmm. that. So they they it sort of I think there's an intention to do something a bit more human and sociable and and um, dare I say it's safe. Um, but I, I there's not a lot of detail about how they're doing that or like if it's you know some kind of algorithmic attempt or if it's yeah. you know a design um, approach to make it's... the culture of the platform nice. But um yeah, yeah look, I think it's an interesting question. How do you meet new people, um, especially when we're all still stuck at home or most of us are all still stuck at home? So, and yeah, so tactical like, from Twitter's side too, because what they really failed to do is help groups organise. They tried that with lists. It really doesn't quite work. Nobody totally. really uses lists yeah. anymore. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, it's an interesting idea. Let's see what new features start um, coming on board. Absolutely. Triple R. The pollen and uh, hay fever or something is a topic that's close to a lot of our noses. Um <laughs> If you or someone you know is sensitive to pollen, you may be using the Melbourne Pollen Count and Forecast website or app. Uh, Dr. Ed La- Edwin Lampagnani has been part of the uh, Melbourne Pollen Count team since 2011 and has played a central role in uh, developing the infrastructure utilised by the team. He's currently the project manager and a postdoctoral researcher with the Melbourne Pollen Count and Forecast. Uh, Ed, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. So first off the bat, Vanessa here. Hi, Ed. How do you forecast pollen? It's got to be very different to other weather patterns and things that we're used to being forecast. So uh, we use a machine learning approach uh, to forecast pollen at the moment. Um, And part of the inputs, of course, uh, take in uh, weather parameters. So we take in um, data from the Bureau of Meteorology. uh, But we also take in data from uh, NASA using their satellites, um, which look at uh, the Earth and tell us uh, how much uh, greenness there is, because that's a measure of how much grass there is around. Oh, that's amazing. That would have never occurred to me. So that's satellite imagery then we're looking at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Incredible. Yeah. So we looked at over, look at it uh, build up uh, over the year, uh, and then we watch for that drop. So as soon as we see that drop happen, we know that something's on the move, because uh, the grass sort of changes colours as it starts to um, flower. Laura. Um, oh yes, sorry. Hi, hello. We're trying to share things around, but we can't see you. <laughs> I, I, it never would have occurred to me that you'd be looking at satellite imagery. Um, how, how do you? Um, how, sorry, words that mean things. What kinds of grasses are you looking for, and what kinds of plants are kind of like particularly problematic? Because I know that you know Melbourne's kind of got this reputation for being a really frustrating place for people with hay fever and allergies, and we've got you know some conditions that are like a combination of. Um, ecological and the our, our positioning that are making it um, extra frustrating and extra bad this time of year. But um, what kind of plants do you look out for and how, how easy it is to sort of tell the difference between one type of grass and another from this kind of data that you're using? Sure. Um, so the Melbourne pollen count uh, has been around for 30 years. Uh, we do count grass. That's what we've been doing for 30 years. And unfortunately, the way that we count grass is using a microscope Uh, and one of the issues that we have is that all grass pollen looks the same. It's sort of round uh, and it's got a pore on it but we can't tell what species it is uh, from that. Um, But grass pollen is the major allergen for most people uh, in Victoria. Um, It's a uh, 
main trigger, but there are other types of pollen around that affects people, and these include uh, different types of tree, like plane, but also moulds, like alternaria. And so the machine learning approach that we use for grass, we've been able to tweak that, and we can now forecast other types of pollen and mould as well, uh, and that's what's sort of new this year. So, Ed, when you first started, you know, you've been going for 30 years. What was the main problem that you wanted to solve? And can you tell us a bit about how the service has evolved since then? Sure. Um, so the Melbourne Pollen Service has operated at Melbourne University for 30 years. I've been involved with it for about 10 years and Associate Ed Newbigan uh, has been involved with it for a bit longer. Um, my involvement uh, sort of started in 2011 and 12 uh, where I took it into sort of the digital era. So previous to that, we would send information to newsletters and radio stations, um, but we've sort of evolved into a digital world. So it's been about evolving the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, that's been able to take the information that we produce as an analogue, so actually counting things from a microscope slide and then putting it into a system, uh, and then that system automatically generating forecasts for us. And, and Ed, how, how can people, I suppose, access those forecasts once you've got them into, into a, a format that uh, is it's digestible to the regular person? Yeah, so we, we've got the Melbourne Pollen app. That's, that's our preferred method um, because what we can do there is we can provide notifications and alerts for our users. So on high pollen count days or extreme pollen count days like it was today, we can send out an alert early in the morning to say that uh, you, know, you should take precautions uh, and that helps people be better prepared. But one of the interesting things about the app is it's a two-way conversation, so people can also complete a survey on there, uh, and they can tell us how they feel. And that's really important to us because it helps us understand that what we're forecasting is relevant to people. I love that too because the first thing you do in this environment when you have an itchy throat or you're sneezing is check that it's a high pollen count day and that you don't necessarily need to go and get another COVID test. Mm. Yeah. Are you getting much feedback about that aspect of things during the pandemic? Uh, the COVID aspect? Yeah. No, no, we, we don't. Um, we haven't. Uh, but uh, pollen season's only just starting. So um, I imagine we'll get a few emails from people. <laughs> so to think back on your machine learning approach, has that been going as long as this project has been going originally at Melbourne Uni? And no. Yeah? Yes. And uh, I no, guess we'd love to hear about, you know, what sort of data you have in there for your, your model to learn from. Sure. So, no, the machine learning approach is, is uh, relatively new. It's, it's a couple of years old now. Um, and the data that we put in, uh, like I said, it's the weather data. So these are variables like the, the daily maximum temperature, rainfall, mo soil moisture content, um, and we also put in information about the, the enhanced vegetation index, which is uh, that satellite information that we were talking about earlier. So that all goes in, but more importantly than all of that is actually the historical pollen count data that goes in. Uh, and so we use that to train the model uh, to understand um, how these environmental conditions relate to the amount of uh, pollen in the air. And how far back does that historical pollen data go? Uh, we have 30 years at Melbourne, but oh we also gosh. have um, lots of information coming in from collaborators. So we have more than 10 years of information coming from Canberra, where there's a Sydney pollen count as well, uh, and there's other services operating around Australia as well. Mm. 
But I think one of the, the things that's really going to change things is uh, we're changing from a manual process where we're counting things uh, to now automated processes where we can actually count pollen using automated machines. That was exactly what I was going to ask, is are you thinking about auto-classifying these slides that you're taking um, as, as the kind of next step to kind of reducing the manual labor of, of annotating and labeling um, the, the actual like, count of pollen in any given image? Yes, absolutely, and it's something that we're trialling this year. So in Australia, we haven't trialled an automated counter before, uh, and so the University of Melbourne uh, is doing that this year. So we're trialling a machine that's been trialled overseas, and uh, it's doing very well, uh, and we're trialling it in Australia, and hopefully uh, it will work just as well here, uh, and we'll be able to have uh, more information that can help people. Ed, that actually gets to something I was curious about, how consistent is what you need to do to forecast pollen uh, information? Um, how consistent is that in different geographies around the world? And, you know, how much can you reuse the same approach everywhere or do you have to sort of customise it to a geography? Yeah, so the machine, the, the approach that we use works well in Australia uh, in the places that we've tested it. So we've tested it in Canberra, in Sydney, uh, and to some extent in Tasmania as well, and it appears to work very well. Um, but we haven't tried it overseas yet, but it's something that we're keen to do. And do we know if there are a lot of other people around the world trying to do this sort of thing, trying to solve this problem? Yes, uh, there, there are people trying to solve the, the issue. The, the main problem with pollen counting and pollen forecasting is that we normally talk about things in terms of big data, um, huge data sets. Um, counting pollen gives you one data point per day. <laughs> and so it's, it's a, a low data issue. Yes. So how do you forecast things when you have a small amount of data? I love that. Is that why Poorly. most of <laughs> our... Answer. Oh, sorry, go, go Laura. Oh, no, I was just saying, like, how do you forecast something when you have low amounts of data? It's usually poorly is the answer. It's quite hard to do. Yeah, so um, that, that's the benefit of having that, that large historical um, database that we can fall back on. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about um, this question of, like, uh, setting a pollen trap or identifying pollen trap locations. And I'm wondering if you can maybe explain a bit more what that means and like how that's related to this, um, this mapping and forecasting model that you're building. Yeah, so we have um, eight pollen count stations across Victoria, uh, and they're located um, in strategic areas. Um, these are generally uh, high population densities, but they're also geographic areas, so that they sort of cover um, different geographic types as well. Um, we interpolate the data that comes in uh, and forecast it um, in that way as well. So the, the forecasts are gridded forecasts, so we can forecast at different points across Victoria, uh, and we sort of average that across the district. So one of the things that happens is that uh, the Bureau of Meteorology has been forecasting in what are called meteorological districts uh, for many years now. Uh, and in order to align what we do um, with what the Bureau of Meteorology does in terms of its thunderstorm forecasting, we forecast in districts, which is what you see on our website and in our app. So that's why they're big blocked areas. Mm. And um, do you find that uh, there's there's sort of demand for more granular forecasting, or do you think that's sort of relatively sufficient for people's like needs to understand what's going on in their neighbourhood? 
No, absolutely, and it's really important that uh, we do get down to that level, especially when it comes to tree pollen and those sorts of things, because grass pollen is relatively light and it can fly large distances. So we know that the information that we get from one trap is relevant for around 50 k's or so, but tree pollen is a lot heavier. It can't, you know, just sort of be caught up in the wind and and blown around for for many kilometres. So we really do need to work on models that are relevant to smaller regions and it's something that we're currently doing. I can't believe I've never heard that before that tree pollen's heavier it doesn't go as far as grass pollen that's actually really useful to know. Mm. Um, Ed I think when a lot of people think about um, concern around the number of allergens in the air or pollen um, a lot of us cast our minds back to the thunderstorm asthma um, big incident that happened in Melbourne some years ago now and the fact that it was um, sort of a bit of an, it seemed like an unprecedented event, you know, ambulances, there weren't enough to go around and people were experiencing asthma type symptoms when they'd never had an asthma attack in their lives. Um, did your service change anything that you do in response to that incident and learn from that? Yes, very much so. So that was the largest event uh, on record, uh, certainly for Victoria and uh, for the the world, I believe. Um, But the main thing that changed is uh, for 30 years we had been counting and forecasting in Melbourne, but there was no Victorian forecast. And so one of the things that happened after that event is that we were able to develop a Victorian forecast model. Uh, And that's what really makes a difference now. We're much more prepared for those sorts of events and we have a much better understanding um, of how to forecast after several years of, of research. Mm. Michelle, we should, should possibly uh, note that there has been a, a warning put out for um, thunderstorm asthma tomorrow, so if anyone does is susceptible to uh, pollen and that kind of thing, just be mindful of uh, the forecast for tomorrow. Uh, I imagine that, yeah, the, the, the data that you guys uh, are getting regionally does, does absolutely assist with that kind of thing. Absolutely, yep. So tomorrow's forecasts, um, they're they're generated by the Department of Health, um, but we provide the pollen forecast information that helps uh, feed into that system. Hmm. So Ed, in broad terms, what do you know about your users? We know uh, we know a lot know a lot about our users. Um, so uh, mostly because they're they're very interactive with us and they like to tell us um, how we help them. We we know that a lot of people um, are carers. Uh, they're people that are looking after either their family or children. Um, they're people that suffer a lot from hay fever. Um, they're also people that really want to find out what their triggers are. So most people feel like they have a hay fever symptom, but they don't really know how to correlate it or why. So one of the things the service does is it helps people understand uh, how their symptoms relate to the environmental conditions that are in the air. And that's not just pollen. There's pollution as well um, that's built into the app now as well. Very interesting. Do you ever envisage a time where you might uh, crowdsource any of this data to to get into different areas? To some extent, the survey that we have in the app um, is uh, being crowdsourced uh, data, which is really fantastic because one of the things that we're hoping to do in the future is start building customised or personalised allergy forecasts. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. 
more information and the more that people can contribute to the survey, the more data points that we can get uh, and the more that we can start piecing together what it actually is that is causing people allergies and really what makes one person feel so much different to another person who might be standing in the same area. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can debunk something for me. I don't know if this is sort of like one of those um, urban myths that just go around or if it's actually real, but you sort of hear a lot that, oh, like asthma is going up and that in general, like, you know, the the, um, pollution and the allergens in the air are making us all a bit more sick and that we're not as well as, um, you know, if we went back a couple hundred years as we used to be. Um, Do you have a sense if that's actually true or if people are like genuinely suffering more from asthma or if it's actually just that we have the capacity to count it now and maybe have a label for it, whereas before we might not have? I, I'm cautious to answer that question because I don't have a full background uh, in that area. My understanding is that the rates of asthma are increasing, but I couldn't comment on the source or reasons why that might be. That's fair enough. Maybe from your plant lens, Ed, can we speculate about uh, whether plants are fighting back and uh, <laughs> getting more, more, uh, <laughs> we're getting more allergic to them because they're trying to claim some space of some kind? Well, I think the pollen load certainly... Uh, I think there's the, there's research out there that suggests that climate change is certainly affecting the pollen load uh, that's around. And so we would expect that as uh, the climate becomes warmer, we would see more pollen. Uh, and that's most likely because there's going to be simply warmer days, more warmer days um, There you go, around. Laura. That's some so. scientific basis. Yeah. That's good. I was also going to ask, like, one of the other climate change-related um, factors that I've heard about is, you know, the increase in winds, particularly certain times of year. And I, I'd be curious to hear if you, you have observed in your data, like, um, any sort of change in overall, like, windiness as a, as a factor to kind of continue to, like, spread that pollen across this season. Yeah, wind is a major uh, contributor to the model, uh, particularly for Victoria at least, uh, or Melbourne I should say, uh, the north-northeast winds uh, are particularly uh, important. So when we do see a north-northeast wind, we know that that's going to start bringing in lots of pollen. One of the unusual things about this year is that you know it's a La Nina year and some of the weather's a little bit more unusual to, to other years and so one of the advantages of the machine learning forecast is that it it retrains every day. So we retrain the model every day and so it can adapt to the current conditions. And that's a really major step forward to to the way that we used to do forecasting. That's fantastic. Ed, it's a a really important um, service you're doing, Vanessa. It certainly is. Hey, Ed, I I just wanted to ask one last question. Um, Sure. You've been with the project for, you know, such a significant amount of time now. Is there one thing that you're most proud about achieving with the Melbourne Pollen Count and Forecast? I think definitely helping people. So I think the the emails that we get every day from people saying that we're making a difference to people's lives, I think really makes it all worth it and uh, it makes it very easy to get up in the morning uh, and help. And, and, and it is a vital vital service that you guys are providing and you know and have done for the last 30 or so years. Where can people find out more about what the Melbourne Pollen Count uh, does? 
Yeah, so the melbournepollen.com.au would be the best place to start, uh, and we've got links to the app there as well. But on the app stores, on Google Play and uh, the Apple Store, um, that's where you can get the app, uh, and we'd encourage you to get it and subscribe so you can support the research that we're doing. Absolutely, and you can donate regularly via that website as well. We've been speaking to uh, Dr Edwin uh, Lampignani from Melbourne Pollen Count. Ed, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's uh, re- real, real, Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. Thank it, you. It is 7.41 on uh, 3RRR. You're listening to Bite Into It. Uh, We've got Laura on the Skype and Vanessa and me in studio, and I'm just going to turn that phone button off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I thought we should talk about even more uh, massive player news uh, that has happened just this week. So TikTok and Snap appeared before US Congress for the first time this week, and it was actually, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday. It's hard to, I have trouble switching from like American time to our time. It was like today, but it was actually yesterday. And, you know, there's some um, period of hours between now and Sunday. Like, <laughs> all I know is that the PBS News Org had covered it on their news today, and so it feels very fresh to me. But um, what was really interesting about the line of questioning and then the line of response was how much uh, Snap and TikTok were trying to differentiate themselves from Facebook and Instagram and and sort of show that, look, we're, we're really being forthcoming and transparent as we can be and we haven't got ourselves into quite the same um, conundrums uh, that some of the bigger, more established players have. We're trying to continue that way. Uh, I wouldn't say that their their gambit was necessarily successful um, with some of the Congress people um, speaking to them sort of saying, well, so we had Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, a Democrat, saying being different from Facebook is not a defence. That bar is in the gutter. It's not a defence to say that you are different. <laughs> So, you know, you could say that they're dealing with quite a hostile Congress and a hostile line of questioning. Um, What was really interesting is that their focus was on child safety and, you know, come speak to us about how you are looking after children on your sites. Uh, First of all, children shouldn't be using your sites, but when they are allowed, you know, how are you containing what they can see? And this is another direct uh, response to the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen's leaks, that has um, really prompted senators to pursue these these hearings and feel like they had a mandate to do so. So that's kind of cool. Laura, have you been following this at all? Um, no, I just I just had a look at it when he shared it earlier today for, in preparation for the show. But um, certainly I'm not surprised that they're starting to cast the net a little bit wider. Like Facebook is not the only company out there that's being, that's been, um, you know, operating essentially without any regulation for a while now. Um, Mm. I did find it funny that Snapchat decided to distance themselves from the concept of social media. They said we were built as an antidote to social media and we describe ourselves as a camera company. I know, I know. And no one's buying it. No one's buying (laughs) it. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It reminds me of the rhetoric around do you remember with the whole gun debate, people were like, you know, guns don't kill people. People, people kill people. Kill people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it has that same kind of vibe, right? It's like, you know, this kind of like attempted like distancing of agency and distancing yeah. of like, you know, the thing we build and the, what happens in the world. And it's like uh, you build a product whose entire 
business model is essentially based on the same concept as casinos, right? Mm. It's like dopamine hits, it's variable rewards, um, you know, it's Skinner boxes. It's like that concept of like, keep pressing the button and every now and then I'm going to get a reward. Yes. Mm. Um, so it, it seems it seems ridiculous to be like, but somehow we're wildly different. And 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 that whole idea of like it's it's something that we've been grappling with at a legislative level in Australia about you know the who's who's a content creator and who's a platform and what's the difference. Mm-hmm. So like, just because you say that you are something and you are a tech company does not make it necessarily so. Can I say a little side point that I learnt from the article in The Verge on this issue was that the Facebook head of safety's name is Antigone Davis and it's like, really, you're named for a Greek tragedy? This is mm. – um, <laughs> that's unfortunate. did Antigone kill her own children? Is that a- <laughs> I believe so. It's well, been yeah. many years well, so since I read. Killed, she killed someone's children. I'm pretty sure that Antigone was the one who got like really mad, ang- like woman mad and like this was her revenge. So yeah. that feels like a – Problematic reference. I'm, <laughs> I'm just glad that there aren't any whistleblowers out there named Cassandra because if they were like, if they were going to be telling everyone and no one's going to believe oh. them. Yeah. Oh. Look, um, what did come out of the, the questioning today or yesterday um, was that Snap, TikTok and YouTube certainly don't want to be on uh, the receiving end of their own whistleblowing scandals and they've all committed to releasing uh, research data and independent studies that they've conducted um, so that that doesn't happen. They're getting ahead of it, which is very interesting. And so hopefully we'll hear progressive reporting as that comes out, you know, because it's quite a transparent um, platform that they're, uh, they're sharing this sort of information on that they're having to answer to. Um, the- I mean, it's, I, I have to say, like, you know, voice of the cynicism over here in the mm. corner, but, you know, this, it's not that hard to fix the numbers. It's not that hard to make the data look the way you want it to look if you're I would um I would be cynical about any internally conducted research unless you can investigate their methods and look at their models and you know kind of poke around um, a little bit and see how good the data science is. Well, um, I mean, I think that's the point though. At least once it's out there, you can question the methods and you can you know question the the um, the conclusions that they've come to. Yeah, um, I was interested to see also that um, the the Chinese version of TikTok. Um, which I will also butcher the pronunciation, but Duyin, I think, um, is adding this like five second pauses into their video feed. And have you ever actually had a look at that app? It's like it's like the fire hose of the internet, like set yeah. ultra. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Like these tiny little snippets of video content, and it's like all very stimulating. And it's you know just like you keep scrolling forever. And the appetite um, for how to receive commenting is so different. Like receiving commenting on top of your video while you're streaming live is kind of fascinating. It becomes this yeah. hectic, yeah, yeah, hectic totally, interface. totally, yeah. So, like, I, I, I sort of feel like, you know, again, it feels like a, a bit of a strange or like, you know, disingenuous attempt to be like, oh, we're gonna put in these five second pauses. It's like, we're gonna make this incredibly addictive candy, but like every five seconds we'll put a little salt on it, but then we'll take it away again. It's like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure how genuine an attempt that is to like. Oh, I agree. Underlying <laughs> yeah. problem. Yeah. It's it's so true, but it's it's interesting to see people try different things almost just to be seen to be doing things. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. I think, you know, like there's definitely this kind of arms race right now to like look like the most ethical company or look like you're, you know, like caring about this or that. And, and you know, like it's I would say it's as much surface in marketing as it is, uh, you know, like 
deep and thoughtful attempts to solve hard problems. Because guess what? Deep and thoughtful attempts to solve hard problems are slow and usually don't look that good. And you also just wonder, is it even possible to solve these problems if your entire business model is around high engagement and, you know, long user sessions and Mm. extending that behavior? I mean, how Mm. is it any different to pokies and the sort of terrible dark patterns that we have motivating, you know, tapping into human psychology in those systems? I'd, I'd be interested to see how much of this was driven by fear of the Chinese Communist Party because they've been cracking down mm-hmm. on various platforms uh, in various ways over over recent weeks, particularly tech companies. And That's true. Yet- They're starting to be very concerned about the the Chinese character and they're talking about, you know, good character and um, what it means to be influenced by these digital mm. platforms. Absolutely. And, and like, you know, things like limiting children's uh, gaming time to three hours a week and all, all kinds of, I mean, we'll, we'll never know truly, but I imagine that there's possibly a little fear, a fear of reprisal from looking at what's happened to other platforms and other other kind of high-profile tech people in uh, China yeah, in the past yeah. over recent months. I mean, you can't can't operate in that market without, without that fear of, Absolutely. you know, the influence and and whether you're serving the party. Mm. Speaking of markets, um, there's been an interesting development. Um, I, I just found this is another weird news thing. Um, the Economist, which I'll, I'll, I'll admit is one of my favourite uh, publications, has bought into the NFT, the non-fungible token um, craze, by selling one of their f- covers um, for charity uh, for 99.9 Ether, which is the equivalent of about $500,000. Oh, they sold it in Ethereum. They sold it in Ethereum. Yeah, so so it was um, basically an article that investigated this whole idea of, you know, the, the, the kind of tech economy and and particularly the the, dig, the digital payments economy um, and it was a, a, a drawing that they'd had um, done which was kind of like an Alice in Wonderland kind of thing and yeah they, so they, they they sold an NFT of it and uh, donated that money to one of their educational charities but I think I think does that does that mean that NFTs are over now if the economists doing it <laughs> yeah as I say like what's the boomers on board I sort of feel like you've you've like taken the gloss off right yeah um, also, like the, I don't know if you've seen the actual image, but you know it's Alice in Wonderland and the rabbit looking down the rabbit hole and all these little coins kind of like jo- falling down the rabbit hole. But they one hundred percent missed this opportunity to have a stonks meme or like you know the the like crazy internet wizard money meme. Like yeah. it's like all of these amazing visual references from cryptocurrency and Bitcoin that like I was just like, Where yeah. <laughs> well, it's 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 funny you should say that because um they do actually if if you subscribe they send you a kind of like on on the on Saturdays they send you a complete like description and like thought process of how they came to the cover image and they, they, this was on the cover and so they had a whole thing about the various options that they tried and stuff. I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I'm the kind of design slash tech nerd that would actually enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Got a few things now that the society is opening up again that people might want to get That's involved with. That's right. Look, an interesting opportunity has come up this week. Um, while it's not 
only tech and computing related. Uh, Startup Vic obviously has a lot to do with startups and many of them are tech related. So we think it's highly relevant to us that Startup Vic CEO Judy Anderson has decided it's time for her to start the next chapter of her life and hand over the reins to Startup Vic. She's been the CEO for three years and um, there's been a whole lot of things under her tenure, including, you know, a growth club and founder connect sessions and the startup success series. Um, And even through the pandemic, they did so much in terms of outreach to the community and um, giving opportunities to people who wanted to run their own startups and grow them and connect with potential uh, founders and data people and everything. So, if you know someone who would do a great job of being Startup Victoria's next CEO, encourage them to apply. You can read a lot more about the job at um, their website, but just go to Startup Vic and check it out there. It's very prominent. Um, there's also an event this week happening, which is Ost Cyber's Cyber Week, which is our down under version of, um, you know, like the InfoSec events that happen in Silicon Valley. And there's a couple of fun things happening at the end of the conference, um, especially a community day on Friday the 29th of this week. And that is going to be an instructor-led full day of open source intelligence training for to, for participants to learn open source fundamentals, searching essentials, and um, cross-platform social media network analysis. And this is in the lead up to their national missing persons hackathon, which is postponed until early next year. So if you're interested in that hackathon, maybe check out this um, open source community day so you can start getting prepped up for that. Absolutely. Uh, Creative Mornings Melbourne are uh, making the case for inclusive designers this Friday uh, at 8.30am. Join Bronwyn Rees and Benaz Irani as we learn about the importance of inclusive design and how to influence organisations on why they should invest in it. It's going to be on Zoom with automated captions and you can uh, register at creativemornings.com. Yeah, just navigate your way to Melbourne. They do fantastic global events, but um, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Hey, big thank you to our guest this evening, Dr. Edwin Lampagnani uh, from the Melbourne Pollen Count and Forecast website and app. Tremendous service and uh, so interesting hearing a little bit about how it came about and how they're planning to grow. Absolutely. And thanks to my fellow hosts, Laura and Dan. Always a pleasure. Thanks to Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.